you know, I think that first batch of beer was the best beer I'd ever tasted, as most home brewers will attest to, and kind of fell in love with it. It was brewing pretty much around the clock in my in my dorm suite at Clark. Uh, left my brewing equipment there, uh, came home to Auburn, Maine for Christmas vacation, returned at the beginning of the second semester uh, to find my brewing equipment confiscated and a note tacked to my door that I had to show up for a judicial hearing in a few days. Um, thankfully, had the wherewithal to bring my student handbook with me and uh, got to that that hearing. And they said, so, you know, son, do you know why you're here? And I was like, yeah, I assume it was for the brewing. But, you know, with all due respect, show me where it says I can't do what I was doing. They looked at each other and looked back at me and they're like, ah, shit. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I talk with Luke Livingston, founder of Baxter Brewing, a craft brewery that has grown to the third largest brewer by volume in Maine since its founding eight years ago. Once the 16th brewery license in the state, Baxter was the first in New England to produce beer exclusively in a can or a keg in part for the environmental benefits and in part to serve its mission of accessibility and portability. Luke talks about competition as an incumbent in an industry that locally is seeing supply outstrip demand and his company's focus on product consistency to serve its growth ambitions, which include exporting to the UK and Canada. Luke Livingston, founder of Baxter Brewing. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Big Time Small Business. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so this is the first one that I've done that I've been on site. We're here at your location uh, in this awesome mill. We'll, we'll definitely get the backstory to it because I know you have yeah. a, a tap room that's opening up. Um, quintupling, quadrupling the size of what was there before? Of our no, tap ten, room 10xing size? the yeah, size. Yeah, about that. We're going from a little bit more than a closet to, uh, to over 5,000 square foot uh, awesome. tap room only. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we're That's going to be great. But first, um, I think probably a lot of people will have heard of Baxter Brewing. You're the third largest brewer by volume in Maine, but, uh, give us the, give us the elevator pitch or the, the, the brief synopsis history of how you got started. Yeah, for sure. So Baxter, uh, located right here in the Bates mill, downtown Lewiston. I grew up across the river in Auburn. Uh, we opened, started brewing beer in January of 2011. And uh, as you said today, yeah, third largest brewery in, by volume in the state. We sell beer from here to New Jersey, um, bef- not including the new tap room space. We've got close to 40 employees. We were the first brewery in New England to can 100% of our beer, can and keg. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that, that's, that's all over your website. So I want to dive into that right now. Uh, why was that decision made? It seems to be a, a calling card of Baxter. Uh, so, you know, where, was, where did that genesis start? Yeah, it's funny. It's commonplace now. I mean, if you, yeah. you know, go into Whole Foods or, or even Hannaford or, or, you know, RSVP anywhere, it's, it's almost exclusively cans now in the craft beer section. But if you go back just a couple of years, we were the first in, in the region to do it. And for me, I, uh, prior to Baxter, ran a beer blog on the side, blogaboutbeer.com. And 
through that, you know, and this is 2008, 2009, I started to get all these press releases in the, in, you know, in the mail, uh, get email press releases about, and samples actually in the mail too, but the press releases and then samples of cans, um, about all these breweries across elsewhere in the country that were canning beer for the first time and the benefits of cans, the portability, the environmental benefits, uh, the benefits to the beer itself. And I was like, Oh no shit, that's a really good idea. Um, I didn't think it was going to be me that would do it, but I was just like, if, you know, first person in Northern New England to start canning beers can have it made. So I'm going to, I'm going to rewind because you, you just hit on something I want to talk about the blog about beer.com. Um, it was your blog before Baxter was even a thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and you sold it before you started Baxter. So take me back to the early days of blog about <laughs> beer. What got you to start it? What got you into it? And what made you make the leap from blogging about beer to brewing beer? What got me into blogging, I think originally, honestly, was um, after college graduation, I was selling print advertising for the Portland Phoenix uh, in Portland, Maine in 2007 and wanted to write and wanted a a side hustle Um, and, you know, was starting to read about blogging, which was becoming a thing in in 2007 and uh, wanted to start a blog, wanted to monetize that blog tried to think of niches I thought I knew something about, um, thought I knew something about beer. Turned out I, I didn't at the time, uh, but I thought I did. And so uh, launched, and, and the domain blogaboutbeer.com was, was miraculously still available. So um, kind of started from there. It, I fumbled around with it, honestly, for several months. But um, as I alluded to, it was, it was cool because... I certain I, I there weren't that many beer bloggers back then, and breweries took me seriously. So I, I did actually. I got samples of beer sent to me in the mail on a weekly basis. Uh, I got invited to all sorts of press events back then. So it, it was it was definitely um, it was it was a cool feeling, uh, you know, as a as a twenty two year old or however old I was to um, to be taken seriously when I certainly shouldn't have been sure. um, writing, writing about beer. And as I mentioned, it was uh, all those, all those can related press releases that originally made me think of the idea. Um, and then uh, was a college admissions counselor at St. Joe's in Standish, Maine um, in, in 2009 um, and uh, 2008, 2009, and my mom passed away. She had breast cancer. She had been battling breast cancer for off and on for four and a half years. Uh, it was one of those cliche life's too short kind of moments and quit my job and at St. Joe's and, um, was trying to think of what I was going to do next and had all sorts of thought I'd make a go at blogging full time and, uh, just all sorts of, uh, really dumb ideas, honestly. But, uh, to my dad's credit, he at the time, you know, essentially told me to, to stop, stop dicking around. And the only good idea I had was actually to, to open a brewery in Maine and can beer. And you know, why don't we, why don't we go ahead and develop that? Yeah. Not crazy at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. Blogging about beer full time is crazy, but brewing beer full time before there really was a craft brewing brewery industry in Maine. That's definitely not crazy. It, um, crazy or not, it was at least the only, um, legitimate, uh, business idea Fair. on the list. So you said that you said that you you thought you knew a lot about beer when you started blogging, but you really didn't. So what is, can you expand on that? What does that mean? Really, <laughs> when, you, when you thought you knew about beer, obviously you were 
and, and we'll get into you were a hobbyist brewer yeah. in college. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that. You had a funny story there about brewing beer in your dorm room. Um, but, but sort of why, why do you say you didn't know anything about beer when you first started? I think a lot of it, um, t- to your point, like there, there, there was a very limited scope of beer available in Northern New England at the time. Um, you know, all certainly all credit to the early main pioneers of the craft beer industry, the shipyards and the gritties and the gearies of the world, but they were all pretty similar brands making pretty similar beer. Um, and through the blog, I learned about the, rather than knowing ahead of time, uh, kind of through writing, learned about the rest of the craft beer industry and the rest of the country and what was happening and the, the, uh, the ways in which breweries marketed themselves and, and the styles of beer they were making, uh, in Colorado and California and Portland, Oregon, um, stuff that I, you know, was very happy to discover, but, but was unaware, mostly largely unaware of before the blog. Sure. So even before the blog, you were a, a hobbyist brewer. Yeah, so I was, talk, I was talk about how that started. Gifted a uh, homebrewing kit. My I have an older, much older half brother. I shouldn't say much older. Um, an older <laughs> half brother who uh, who was brewing for years before before I turned twenty one, and so he gifted me uh, for my twenty first birthday a, a homebrewing kit, um, and and indefinitely loaned me a copy of his. Uh, Papazian, Charlie Papazian, um, the the complete guide of homebrewing, uh, the homebrewer's Bible, essentially. Um, and uh, so and I started kind of fooling around with it and, and brewing in my college dorm room at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, my junior year of college, and brewed a f- couple of batches of beer first semester. My birthday's in September. So I had that whole first semester to brew. And, and, um, you know, I think that first batch of beer was the best beer I'd ever tasted as most home brewers will attest to and kind of fell in love with it. It was brewing pretty much around the clock in my, in my dorm suite at Clark, uh, left my brewing equipment there, uh, came home to Auburn, Maine for Christmas vacation, returned at the beginning of the second semester uh, to find my brewing equipment confiscated and a note tacked to my door that I had to show up for a judicial hearing in a few days. Um, thankfully, had the wherewithal to bring my student handbook with me and uh, got to that that hearing. And they said, so, you know, son, do you know why you're here? And I was like, yeah, I assume it was for the brewing. But, you know, with all due respect, show me where it says I can't do what I was doing. They looked at each other and looked back at me and they're like, ah, shit. <laughs> um, so I got my equipment back at the end of the year and came back at the beginning of my student, uh, my senior year and they passed out fresh handbooks to everybody. And there was a now a page in the alcohol policy that says there's no brewing of alcoholic beverages anywhere on Clark property. Um, you've been doing Baxter's legal work ever since. Exactly. <laughs> I have a copy of that page framed at home. So I can't tell you how many brew fests and stuff we've been to over the years where people come up to me and they're like, it's your fault. <laughs> Sorry, bud. Uh, well, you were the first. Yeah. So a couple they, months ago, they put me on the cover of the alumni magazine. So perfect. eventually it all comes full circle. Yeah, it all, it all worked itself yeah. out. So talking about the early days of Baxter, um, this is before, I mean, if we flash forward to today, there are how many craft brewers in Maine? 126. Right. Probably by the time we're done this interview, it'll be 127. <laughs> sure. But back then it wasn't. We had the 16th license in Maine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So can you, can you talk a bit about the industry, the sort of the tailwinds or headwinds you were facing at the time and what it was like to be opening up a brewery 10 years ago, whereas now 
I think people listening to this say, yeah, well, I, I go on the brew bus and I, I hit up all these places, you know, the, the, the atmosphere is great, but back then it, it wasn't so defined. It wasn't so defined, uh, but it was, it was a hell of a lot easier. You know, I, I can't imagine today being like, you know, it's a great idea. I'm going to go open the 128th brewery in Maine. I'm not going to do anything differently than anybody else, but I don't, I don't see the appeal in that personally. Call me cynical, but, um, you know, back then we could have a, a, a business model, uh, that was different than everybody else's. We could be the first to can. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that a first exists in Maine in this industry anymore. Uh, we were also the first kind of major production brewery in Lewiston, Auburn. So we were always and still are treated as a big fish in a small pond. The municipalities of Lewiston, Auburn love us. Um, we got a ton of earned media right out of the gate for being, North of Portland for renovating an old, old mill for my age, for canning, um, for making, you know, American style ales in Maine when other people weren't. So uh, I think all of those opportunities that existed for us at the time don't exist anymore. We had a few, there were a few uphill battles, uh, back then of convincing people that better beer could come in cans. Um, honestly, I was surprised at the time that, that there weren't more of those uphill battles, I think because, you know, the, one of the benefits, probably arguably the best benefit of cans, the portability, you can take them with you on the boat, on the golf course, on the campground. Um, be, I think because people in Northern New England already spend so much time outside, we heard countless stories back then of, you know, wanting to drink local beer, craft beer, doing, you know, drinking local beer in the clubhouse and then having to kind of dumb down to a mass domestic when they were out on the golf course or out on the boat because you can't take glass. Yeah. Um, we heard those stories all the time. So I think people were appreciative more than I expected out of the gate. So um, I think what we've touched on is the atmosphere, albeit underdeveloped, was actually an opportunity as you hit on sort of this nascent demand that you capitalized on in, in the early in the early years yeah. when there weren't yeah. 120 now seven <laughs> right. licensed brewers in Maine. 128. 128 by now, by now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because it wasn't such a obvious thing to do, raising capital also much harder. So can you talk about your almost year-long quest to raise the capital to start a brewery, which is not the most capital light business out there. Take a not capital light business to begin with, and then try and put it in a 175 year old textile mill. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, the end result is, is blogging well, full time. Sounds pretty good. Exactly. Right now, right? Exactly. <laughs> what we argue might be the prettiest brewery around, but certainly, um, one of the most expensive. Um, yeah, it did. It took me a little over a year to, to raise $1.3 million. I, in the end, most of it, uh, with some, some bank involvement, city of Lewiston involved a little bit, but the vast majority of that money came from, um, either private equity, private debt financing, uh, from, from friends and family mostly. So, um, no, no question, big, big leap. You mentioned that you had sort of one of those, one of those moments, one of those life is short moments yeah. to sort of catalyze you to do that. Um, Part of it was also selling your your blog, blog about beer. Did that give you enough impetus, or frankly, just enough of a kick in the pants to say I'm going to do this? Or did it give you a little bit of a runway to say I can I can afford to spend a year trying to raise 1.3 million dollars to start this brewery? You know, what was it that that got you? Is you know, a year 
to raise the money to start a business, you know, that's, that's a slog. A lot of people probably yeah. hear that and say, I thought I wanted to start a brewery when Luke and Palmer started talking on the podcast. And now I'm not so sure. No, um, no, I mean the, you know, I think it sounds sexy to have sold a website that I, in reality, I sold it for $1,600 or something like it covered my rent for a month, but, um, certainly did not cover all my bases. I, uh, did a lot. Of, I, I wrote some freelance writing during that year. I took odd jobs through that year. Uh, I worked at the, the Portland Sea Dogs, slinging Sea Dog biscuits for a couple summers. Um, even after we were under construction at the brewery in the summer of 2010, I was still, still hustling Sea Dog biscuits. So, uh, and then on, to be honest, uh, and I'm still paying for it today in a lot of ways, I, I paid my rent on my credit card for a lot of that year. Um, it was, a calculated risk. I figured I had the rest of my life to pay off my bills if, if things didn't work out or, or even if they did work out. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a financial struggle that I was willing to take, um, that I'm still paying for. And thankfully I was young and naive. I don't know, but still paying for it 10 years later in a lot of ways. Yeah, Ouch. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that, that, that is a, a story that's not it's incredible, but also it's not unique to a lot of entrepreneurs who actually agreed who actually get agreed. over the hump yeah. and do yeah. it and, and don't quit uh, of that just incredible grit and perseverance of mission oriented and I'm not going to stop until I get there. Yeah. How how much of the vision of Baxter for you was set in stone when you're going through that and you just had that clear cut vision of this is where I'm going and I'm not going to stop until I get there and how much of it was, you know, I'm seeing 10 feet in front of me. And I'm going to see 10 feet in front of me again when I take that next step and I'll just keep taking steps. Both for sure. Um, that's a, that's a excellent question. Um, I think a lot, you know, excuse me, a lot of the bones of, of the company were in that original business plan. Uh, in a lot of ways we haven't strayed that, that far from it. Um, being can only being dedicated to Lewiston, Auburn into Maine, making, um, styles of beer that, that people weren't making in the state then. And, and in a lot of ways still aren't, um, as the styles of the industry, the popular styles of the industry have ebb, ebbed and flowed. We continue to, to find ways to kind of do our own thing and to innovate. And that's always been really important to us. Um, it's always been my mantra and it was in that, in that business plan and, and still is today to, you know, as long as we continue to make beer that, we give a shit about and that other people give a shit about, um, and stick true to our core values and, and the things that are, you know, the most, the tenants that are most important to us as, as staff and coworkers, um, will continue to grow as big as we want. And that was the plan from the beginning. You know, I, I could see a Cumberland farms from where I was writing my business, my apartment in Portland at the time where I was writing my, my business plan in the West end. Um, and my, plan was to create beer that you could take anywhere, i.e. the can and, and buy anywhere. You know, I wanted, you, you see so many of those 146 breweries that we're at now, um, you know, have, have a business model that, that is predicated on the, the taproom model and the lines out the door on a Saturday morning. Um, I never wanted that. I wanted Baxter beer to be a, available in every Cumberland Farms and every Hannaford and every Rite Aid in Northern New England. Um, that was important to me. I wanted it available to anyone 
and, and to go anywhere. Um, and, and is that, so is that an availability thing or is that your vision? Cause my, my next question is going to be about growth. How do you think about it? And a lot of people think about it differently. Some people say, look, we'll be as big as we need to be. And if that's, you know, one mini production facility with a tap room, so be it. Sounds like your ambitions are a little bit broader than that. Yeah. I, I mean, our, our plan has, it's always been about availability to me. Um, and to grow kind of as big as we can to, to that end, for sure. So in that sense, do you see yourself going national? Is that, is, that the, is that the goal out there? No timeline associated with it, but the goal. Um, you know, national is such a hard, a hard word. Um, I don't know that the opportunity to be a national brewery exists in our industry anymore. Um, with as, a, the, as a standalone, company. as a standalone company, with the amount, with the volume of breweries that there are in in the country right now, um, it you know it depends a bit on your definition of national. De- does does your definition of national mean you distribute um, in states that are on kind of throughout the country, or do you have to be in all fifty states? Um, you know, I would call Allagash a national brewery, and they distribute in eighteen states, but throughout the throughout the country, sure. um, something like that I think is still doable, and and I certainly would include Baxter's vision as that. Um, you know, as as certainly East Coast and beyond distribution. Um, a lot of my job anymore is to is to look at new markets. Um, I think also. Um, one of Baxter's short-term plans, and I think the future for our growth and growth of the U.S. industry is exporting our beer. A lot of what we're looking at right now, I'm actually going in September to Leeds, uh, to the United Kingdom, to look at, at distribution there. I talked to importers in Canada and, and beyond as well. So um, that's certainly on the, the list of goals. Interesting. Yeah. So, so is, that's more of a short-term than distributing to the West Coast? Yeah. Any particular reason? Well, we there are places, spots in Canada that are closer currently than our southernmost uh, distribution in in New Jersey. Yep. So that's absolutely part of it. Um, and then part can't of it, say the same about the UK though. Yeah, no, you can't say the same about the UK. However, a lot of it is is lack of competition. There are only so many, you know, so many of the American U.S. craft breweries are focused on selling beer right out their front door. Sure. So there is an opportunity. So, so it's a, it's a white space in the market is more of what you're, yes. what you're yeah. seeing and trying to tackle than, all right, let's just keep it a little bit simpler, staying domestic than have to deal. Are there, are there complexities exporting internationally with a substance like alcohol? Yes, uh, absolutely. It depends, uh, both on the, on, you know, and, and a lot of it is still a learning process for me to I'll be transparent. I haven't learned all those intricacies yet. But, um, I'd make sure you check that student handbook. I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but the short, the short answer is yes. And, you know, a good example is, um, in, in Canada labels, all labels have to be bilingual. For instance, sure. it doesn't matter where in Canada you're distributing. Um, also there, there are label requirements. There's, um, exporting paperwork, both domestically that needs to be done. Um, taxing structures different on beer that we, we don't pay American excise tax on beer that we export. Um, so there's, there's paperwork to do both domestically as well as abroad. Sure. So I want to, I'm going to fast forward from the origins of Baxter to sort of compare it to Baxter today. Um, 
eight years. So coming up on that 10 year anniversary, yeah. long time. You're, you're How did that happen? <laughs> I considered one of the stalwarts yep. in certainly craft brewing in Maine, I'd say craft brewing generically. Um, can you, can you sort of compare and contrast Baxter day versus Baxter then what's changed, what hasn't and sort of what the, the focus is right now outside of exporting to the, to Canada and UK. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget being at the the main brewers guild summer session brew fest in Portland in the summer of 2015 and all the tables were lined up alphabetically. And so we were right near uh, Bigelow brewing and the owner of Bigelow came over and shook my hand and said, you know, Holy shit. It's so nice to meet you. Uh, you're such a legend. And I was like, pump the brakes for a second. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, incredibly flattering, but, not possible. Yeah. It's been four years. Chill out. Yeah. Um, there are so many more pioneers and legends, uh, in actual pioneers and legends who came long before I did, um, who deserve that praise. Not, not I, but, um, you know, just kind of goes to show you. And again, this was 2015, how much the industry had already changed in those couple of years. And then, yeah, fast forward three more years and it's, it's very different than it was three years ago or certainly eight years ago. But. Sure. So what, what are the, some of the challenges, obviously competition more and more prevalent. We've, we've quipped a couple of times. We joked a couple of times on this podcast. Now the, the number of, of brewery licenses is probably up to 300 since we've been on the podcast. <laughs> um, you know, Baxter itself has, has experienced some production declines in 2017. I think that you attribute primarily to competition. Um, so talk about a little bit about that. Um, and is it, is it competition, but also a sort of coordination against the big incumbents, the InBevs, the Miller Coors? Is it now, is it just so big that it's pure competition? You know, what's it like now with 127 other breweries in yeah. Maine? Um, all, <laughs> yes, <laughs> is the the simple answer. You know, I think we've, we refer to it a lot. We are kind of brewery brethren and not just Baxter, refer to ourselves a lot as co-opetition. Um, so yes, we all, uh, kind of can, can band together against the Bud Miller courses of the world. And, and that's obviously important. It's important to work together, um, to make sure legislation is headed in the direction we want. And, and we do often share resources, share information, uh, knowing full well, you know, and, and craft beer drinkers naturally know one person is drinking just one brewery's beer. Uh, you know, a bud drinkers, a bud drinkers, a bud drinker by and large, but a craft beer drinker is going to try everybody's beer. So, um, kind of anybody we can get over to, to our side of the fence is, is a win for all of us. We know that, you know, so that's the cooperation side. That's the cooperation side, the competition side nationally craft beer still accounts for you know, roughly 12% of, of beer sales in the country. It's higher in Maine. Mainers love Maine made things. Um, but nationally it's still only about 12%. So of a hundred people who walk into a liquor store, only 12 of them are buying craft beer. Nine out of those 12 are going to buy an IPA and eight out of those nine are never going to buy the same beer twice. So it gets, your market gets real small, real quick. Um, Locally, the the example I use a lot is flatbread um, on on Commercial Street in Portland has been there since I was in high school, and I've been going there since I was in high school, and they've been good to us since Baxter opened. Uh, we've we've had a consistent draft line there since the day we opened. 
um, when we opened, they had 12 draft lines. So on the worst day, we got a 12th of the sales. Today, they have 30 draft lines, but they're not seating any additional people. Like the restaurant didn't grow. And yeah, one or two people, additional people might be buying craft beer than were eight years ago. But now we're looking at a 30th of the beer sales instead of a 12th. Um, and, you know, we haven't done anything. We haven't done anything differently to deserve that. So Sure. Yeah. So then how do you... How do you change what you're doing? How do you market what you're doing? How do you emphasize what you're doing to stand out so you can capture more of those, you know, more than one thirtieth of, yeah, the, of yeah. those draft sales um, for the people who, you know, are indifferent or not indifferent, but are not sure what they want to get. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, isn't that the, <laughs> that's the million dollar question. If I can answer that, I could probably start a much more lucrative career as a consultant. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a combination of, of so many things. I think we obviously continue to innovate, release new beers all the time. Um, which is, is sort of, if you're not coming up with a new beer right now and tomorrow and the next day you're, you're dying in this, in this industry right now. So that's obviously a big part of it. Um, and is that because the, the craft beer drinker is always looking for that new thing yes. because they're always tasting something? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think we also are succeed, are seeing a lot of our continued success right now with a beer like Stowaway IPA, our flagship um, beer, which still is, uh, I believe the best selling IPA made in the state of Maine. Uh, and, and, close to 60% of our total production. And I think it continues to see so much success when it is on draft because it is reliable. It's consistent. It's high quality. It's made the same way every time. And a drinker knows it, know they love it. And when they get sort of overwhelmed by a draft selection, you go in there, there are 30 draft lines. You haven't heard of 25 of the, of the breweries. You're like, shit, shit, shit. Oh, uh, give me a stowaway. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of kind of continued success or, or rebirth of the brand because of that. Um, and then we in Maine have incredible distribution partners. We work with nappy distributors and, and pine state beverage, uh, who themselves, you know, there are so many of those new breweries in Maine of the, the 400 by now, um, are self-distributed as well. So they, you know, with Nappy and with Pine State, they're able to deliver our beer consistently on time. They have draft technicians to fix problems. They have merchandisers to stock shelves. And just like the buyer knows that our beer is, and the consumer knows our beer is consistent, they also, you know, have the reassurance that it's going to be there every time. Um, yeah. So now, now you're getting into the business professionalism of being a brewery, which is great because it's somewhere I wanted to go. Uh, it's one thing to make great beer, great craft beer, or even maybe not even, don't even say great, something new, unique, yeah. different. Yep. And therefore that's interesting, at least for a four pack or right. a six pack. Right. But what you're talking about is a business. And so much of that is not just a great product, but a great service to back up that product. It's always going to be there. It's going to be cold. It's going to be stocked well. The labels are going to be facing the right way. Can you talk about as an eight-year-old company, I think that's something you guys have probably learned and developed over the time that a new startup for their new mash, sour, blackberry, raspberry, crumble <laughs> beer, uh, they might ha- it might be very interesting, but 
you know, they're not gonna have the business sophistication behind that to, to really make it prevalent. I hope so. But I think that's the business model of so many of these new breweries. Um, and they're not thinking about tomorrow. Uh, they're, they're just thinking about the line at their door on a Saturday morning, that Saturday. And, um, and I think that's something we've always prided ourselves on. And I think that's why we will continue to, to be successful and be relevant. Um, our director of brewing ops, we just hired a year ago, came to us from new Belgium and Oscar blues before that. So breweries who are doing it even bigger and better and more consistently than we are. Uh, our, uh, operations manager we hired from Pepsi. She, uh, she was at, at, at Pepsi and, and green giant. Um, so, you know, talk about <laughs> consistent, uh, companies, huge operations. huge operations. And, and we were able to pluck her from, from those operations too. And, and, um, and she's an Auburn native. We were high school classmates and, and she's here making sure that we're, you know, producing the same quality, consistent product, um, and getting it to getting, getting it out to retail in a record short amount of time. And sure. Yeah. So is, so is that how you and how Baxter is keeping an eye towards tomorrow? It's putting the people in place that have experience with much bigger operations so you can continue to scale effectively, sort of keeping an eye on, look, we're not, we don't plan on being this big forever. We're going to, we're going to take steps to be bigger in the future. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure, both physical and human capital to grow. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, bigger part of it for sure, but also, uh, it's, it's, I can't, un, I can't overstate the importance to us right now of continuing to release a consistent product, um, both consistent in, uh, in taste, in recipe and consistent in availability. And how hard is that as a brewer? Very difficult. You know, the, the best brewers in the world, talking about Anheuser-Busch, the best brewers in the world are the brewers at Anheuser-Busch. Because if you get a Bud Light, in Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon, or Shanghai, it's going to taste the same with three very different water sources and and you know three different uh, systems to brew on, and the most talented brewers in the world for sure. That's awesome. So um, I, I try to as much as possible get into the weeds a couple times in the podcast to sort of talk about some nitty gritty. So talk to me about the complexities involved in that just product consistency. So it sounds obvious, right? You're in a sense, you're a manufacturing company, you manufacture beer, right? You're dealing with things like yeast that are live and water sources and different equipment, all that makes sense. So how, what, is, what are some of the things that you have to do in order to ensure product quality and consistency at scale like that? Um, and I, I should preface this statement by, by saying, hey, I can personally brew 10 gallons of beer on my stovetop, all right? Um, I, I don't do any of our brewing at Baxter. I haven't. I've hired brewers from the beginning. I, I realized I knew my own shortcomings and, and, uh, we have a, a world class staff of, of brewers now, um, who that's their primary focus is, and, and so much of it is, is palate based. And, um, a lot of it is obviously biology based and, and part of our, expanded uh tap room here our current tap room that's open today is going to going to become our first dedicated biology lab which we're um, probably in a lot of ways even more excited about um to, to have that dedicated lab space to do uh, the lab work necessary to produce consistent beer that that smaller breweries don't have um most smaller breweries don't have some some certainly do but um 
so so we are making those continued investments in in biology lab work um, and hiring world class brewers. Sure. So, so you mentioned uh, a couple of things already in the podcast that I want to go back to. The first one is your shift in your role a little bit. Um, you are you are now part time in Portland, <laughs> still in Maine. Yeah, part time in yeah. Portland. You're getting back to uh, before we press the record button. Uh, a quip that I hear a lot about from founders is uh, shaking hands and kissing babies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so talk about sort of your role and how it's evolved to what it is today and what you're focusing on, what you're focusing your time on Absolutely. and why. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think like, like most founders of small businesses, I, in the beginning did with the exception of brewing, did pretty much everything, um, at Baxter from spending time on the packaging line to, uh, to running our social media and, and, uh, doing all the sales initially and, and everything out of the gate, um, to, eventually sort of in a lot of ways hiring myself out of a job and which I think is always the goal and being a, being getting to a point getting to a place where I can work um you know it's a fam the famous saying work on the business instead of in the business and so I I still at the brewery several days a week but also you know I'm able to work from home in Falmouth or I have a desk at, at Cloudport co-working space in Portland so I'm able to um to be there if I want to work from home without being pestered by uh by my almost five-year-old um and, uh, so, so, and then home more often than I, than I certainly was in the first few years, but, but traveling more often too. now and visiting our accounts and our wholesalers throughout our distribution footprint and, and, uh, meeting with our, our bigger accounts was out in, in Akron, Ohio, a couple of weeks ago, meeting with the, uh, new England beer buyer for circle K who's based in Akron. Interesting. Um, go figure. Sure. But, uh, and then going to, as I mentioned, the leads in a few weeks too, to, to meet with importers in the UK. Um, as part of the main beer box with the uh, main brewers guild too. So, sure. so speaking, is it, speaking so, of coming full circle. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. So is it mostly business development stuff like that and sales and customer relations? Is it sort of front facing? Yeah. Yeah. As you said, the shaking hands and kissing babies. Shaking hands, kissing yep. babies. Yep. Love it. Um, you, you touched on something a bit there that I want to go back to is, is hiring yourself out of a job and being able to work on the business versus in the business. And that you, you said that that's a transition that sort of, that seems obvious and is what everyone either wants to do or does do. Mm -hmm. I can tell you firsthand from, from conversations with business, with business owners that that definitely isn't always the case. It's, yeah, certainly didn't mean to imply that. Talk, it is, but, yeah. Well, no, no, yeah. but, but, but it's great because in order to be able to scale, a person only scales so many ways. So in order for you to sort of continue that, that founder role, that visionary role, you have to develop or have to evolve out of other roles. Otherwise yeah. you're just going to yeah. get tied down. So can you talk about that decision point uh, and when it occurred and how it occurred to say, I need to make a change. It's going to be different and it's okay. And this is a natural progression of what it means to be a bigger company. I, for me, that, that decision honestly came in, in right in my business plan. Um, you know, and I think in a lot of ways, a lot of the reason for our early and continued success is I was self-aware enough to know the things that I didn't know. Um, and so, you know, it was never my plan to do, to do everything. Um, I, it was my plan to hire well and to have a, an incredible team of talented people around me, uh, doing all the things that I knew I couldn't do or, or didn't want to do. Um, so that, that was the plan from, from the beginning for sure. And, uh, and I think one of the things we've always gotten right at Baxter is having the best damn team we can. So, so that, 
That's awesome. And I, and I think any, any owner, any founder, I think anyone that really works on a team will tell you that having a great team is, is such a tremendous yeah. lift, but it's easy to say that it's hard to execute on actually building a great team that has individuals that are high, high achievers, high performers, and that can come together and be a high performing team. Um, so how have you built that team? How have you hired so well? How have you delegated so well? It's one thing, <laughs> it's one thing to hire someone yeah. to do a job, yeah. but as the founder and the owner, it's hard to let go. Um, and I, you know, that's not to say we've gotten it right every single time. Uh, nobody does. Nobody does. Nobody does. But I think it speaks to the quality of the team and the quality of the brand and the quality of the, the company are the people that were meant to stick around have, you know, and the people that were meant to matriculate into Baxter have, um, and, and I think that the, the, the right people when they're here can, can still, it's palpable. They can still feel that, that team and, and people want to be a part of it, um, both from, from a staffing perspective. And I think honestly, from, um, just a, a brand perspective, I think a lot of our early success was because consumers could tell like those guys at Baxter, like they've got something figured out. They've, they found that, you know, je ne sais quoi. And, uh, and we want to be a part of it, whether that's drinking the beer or going to the promos or, or applying for the, you know, a canning line job, um, jobs that, that honestly pay 11 bucks an hour and are pretty repetitive and, and pretty shitty. We, you know, have never had a shortage of applicants for because people, you know, because people want to be a part of, of what we built. And we're very lucky for sure. 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 The next thing uh, I want to talk about is, is funding the growth. Uh, breweries and our first episode was uh, Jordan Milne, hard short distilling. Yeah, uh, I know Jordan. Yep. So craft distilling, a bit like craft brewing, uh, except when you're, when you're making bourbon, you got to wait 10 years to figure out if you did it right. Uh, that's, that's a bit, bit of a downside there. Yeah. But both are very capital intensive businesses. Both you have a lot of input costs on the upfront and a very long payoff with, with huge economies of scale where to ramp up it's again, more capital, more working capital. Can you talk about how you financed it, how you've, how you've thought about growth from a financial angle and how you guys have tackled it? Yeah, I, um, story I always like to tell is, you know, my, my first business plan was, was massively off financially, massively off, uh, just can't even begin to quantify. Meaning um, expenses were expenses, too low. The, what I had written, yes, the expenses were way too low. Um, and for, you can't just make more beer. When there's demand for more beer, it's not like a widget where you can just turn up the assembly line. Uh, you can't make more beer without more labor, without more brewers, without more fermentation capacity, without more packaging capacity, without more tap handles, without more kegs, without now in, in the current climate of the industry, without more people to sell the beer at the end, at the end of the day. Um, and the, the kind of the first my, my, I think single biggest mistake line item in my original business plan for the first couple of years and the biggest kind of financial learning experience for me was kegs. I, you know, I, I remember very clearly being like, oh, we're going to have a couple hundred draft lines when we open. So we probably need a couple hundred plus 50 kegs. Uh, in reality, every draft line equates to probably four, depending on how far away from home you are, four to six 
kegs per per draft line because there's the one being filled at the brewery. There's one at least, you know, in your distributor's warehouse ready to go to an account. There's one on draft at the account. There's sometimes a backup at the account. And then there's any number of empties floating between the three tiers um, ready to be refilled. And, you know, so in reality that, and, and kegs are, yeah, half barrel keg is a 150 bucks a piece. And, um, you know, in reality we needed six times as many of them, I think in the first year as we, uh, as we originally allotted for. So tough inventory management. Yeah. You touched on something right there that, uh, I, I do want to expand upon, um, sort of the, the unsexy side <laughs> of running a small business. Um, we touched on it with Jordan yeah. and he's like, listen, if you love distilling, <laughs> don't, don't start, start distilling. a distilling yeah. company because yep. less than 15% of what he does is distilling. Now he's got to run a business. He's got a distiller. So like, if you love distilling, be a distiller at a, at a distillery company. Right? Um, so can you talk about, I know it's not all bad and it's not all good, but talk about some of the stuff that's, you know, the, the unfun stuff about starting a brewery. Cause it isn't all, you know, you're just slugging back beers and having a good time drinking some suds. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the, the number one comment I always get is like, Oh, that must be so awesome. It must be so fun. You must get to drink whenever you want. And, um, yeah, I mean that, that obviously that's, you do get to, <laughs> uh, it is fun. Still got to get your work done. Still got to get your work done. <laughs> if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't fun, we wouldn't still be here. And even at the end of the day, we still get to make and sell beer for a living. So even, even when it sucks, it's still pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, we, we could take hours and probably dedicate an entire podcast series to the, you know, behind the scenes bullshit of the beer industry. But, um, from regulations to broken equipment, to batches of beer down the drain, to, you know, having to fire people, I've had to fire high school classmates. Um, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, can you give me, just give, give us one anecdote of a particular gut punch setback. You just, maybe it was, particularly bad timing or particularly bad setback, uh, of man, you know, this just, this sucks. Two thirds of our very first batch of beer of our very first batch of stowaway went down the drain accidentally. Accidentally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Valve was left, left open the day we were supposed to can our first batch of stowaway. Um, you know, having, having no cash flow and the entire state of Maine eagerly anticipating the first release of beer. And we ended up canning and kegging, you know, 20 per 20% of what we were supposed to. Um, which means you were late on all the other orders. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, yeah, like I said, having to, having to fire people, um, having, you know, I, I'll certainly never forget, standing on our loading dock when we were first open and people were begging for beer and I had to watch a pine state truck, um, pull it. There's a Fishbones restaurant in Lewiston. Their back door is, is across an alley from our front door and watching a, a delivery truck from, from, um, you know, we, we had no kegs. Like I mentioned, we had no kegs, <laughs> nothing to fill orders coming out of the woodwork and watching a pine state truck pull up, go into Fishbones pull out an empty Baxter keg, load it on the truck, drive it up to Gardner to be warehoused for a day, to be brought back down to Lewiston the next day for us to fill it, to mm. go back to Gardner, to come back to Fishbones. Tough model. Yeah. That's tough. Like I said, we could go on, we could go on probably for hours. Sure. Yeah. Sure. No, that, that, I think that, that covers it. 
So I want to wrap up the, uh, the podcast with a couple questions that I ask everybody. Cool. Um, and the first one is if I gave you four months with the magic pause button of life <laughs> where the headaches, the fires of the day, the two thirds of your batch just got, just got wiped out, just went down the drain by accident. And you had to focus the, that four months on Baxter. How would you allocate that time? Um, you know, I think for us, it would be to, to find those areas of growth, you know, the, the what's next. Um, cause it is, and not only where, but how, you know, obviously there, there are 135 new breweries in every state, in every market in the country. Um, and, and most other foreign countries too, uh, that's, it's happening everywhere and local is important everywhere as it should be. Um, so finding new places to sell our beer, um, and ways in which to sell our beer and, and, and partnerships to explore. And, um, you know, thankfully that's the fun stuff, but it would be great to be able to focus on it. Right. Sure. Uh, the next question, similar, uh, uh, slightly different in that if I gave you a million dollars, uh, but you had to reinvest it back in Baxter, how would you do it? Good question. You've already um, financed your tap room. Yeah. So, so we don't, I can't do, that. do that. Um, let's get this one open too, before we open another one. So I won't, I won't use that either. Um, it would be, it would be hiring more people for sure. So, um, it's funny how everyone, it always comes down to yeah, people. Yeah. I love it. Everyone, everyone, even in manufacturing, everyone's in the people business yep. in some way. Yep. Definitely. Uh, feet on the street for us. So it'd be sales. Yeah. It would be sales, sales and marketing. Um, so additional sales reps, um, and, and, you know, our marketing department is still essentially a department of, we'll say one and a half people, um, or one and a half and another half maybe. And, uh, and those one and a half are way overworked and way underappreciated. So sure. plug in there too. So do you have enough capacity production wise in order to meet the demand of that currently that's yep. that sales staff going yep. out and selling a bunch more? Yep. The, um, I, I'm quick to say yes. Your production, bre your brewmasters might tell you differently. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the thing, production, beer production in Maine is is such a bell curve. Um, the fifty percent of the beer of the total liquid sold in Maine is sold between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Um, really? Yeah. Mainers drink all year round. Sure. They're just four times as many people here during the summer. Uh, so this time of year, I mean, this you know this this first week in August, uh, we're brewing six days this week and every tank we've got is filled to the brim. Um, you know, if we were talking in February, it'd be a very different story. So, um, so, you know, I don't know that we necessarily need to, to invest in, um, in equipment. Uh, you know, if I, I, I could put it that way. If you, if I get the four months to figure out what to do, um, maybe that's, maybe that's a better answer <laughs> is, uh, is figure out how to sell beer in the first and fourth quarters. Sure. Yeah. Start selling in the South. Right. Yeah. Could be. Go, go tackle Texas. Could be. SoCal. Yep. Arizona, New Mexico, South, Southwest. Yep. All right. So the last question is very free form. Uh, I learned it from my first boss, uh, when I used to work on wall street, uh, and I was a 23 year old taking meetings with fortune 500 CEOs and I'm in a room with me and my boss and, uh, crazy, but, uh, he always, he always closed out every single, uh, management meeting with the same question. What haven't I asked? That I should have? <laughs> and I always thought that is the brilliant question 
And when I start a podcast later in life, <laughs> I'm going to use that. Someday. Because it takes all the onus off of me yep. and puts it all Son on you to ask yourself your own question and then answer it. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk so much about the change in the industry and the so many new breweries. I think one thing we haven't touched on is what happens to the industry in a couple of years. Um, you know, talked about at Baxter, I hope we continue to grow and innovate and continue to make beer that we care about. Um, and, and, you know, stick true to our core values, et cetera. But I think, I hope what happens in the industry and you, you know, you touched on it earlier that the, so many breweries aren't focused on the business of, of making beer. Um, and I, you know, the, 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 growth rate of the industry right now, uh, or the number of breweries that are opening, I should say, not, not, not the growth rate. amount of beer sold, sure. but, um, but the number of breweries opening, uh, is not sustainable. It's not. And, you know, especially in a very finite market, like the state of Maine, mm -hmm. 1.2 million people here, we can't support 1.2 million breweries. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that in the next couple of years, the, um, that will self-regulate. I think it started to nationally, there've been more brewery closings in 2018 already than in the last, you know, I think five years combined. Um, so I, I think that will continue to happen. I think the industry will sort of self-regulate. Um, do you think capital is going to get shut off? Cause I mean, one thing. It's one thing to say it's crazy that all these breweries are opening, but they're getting financed somehow. You know, it Absolutely. takes a lot yeah. of money yeah. to start, and it's not yeah. all these people self-financing right. it. So Without money's going in there, and at least part of it has got to be that the, the takeout opportunities for beverage companies is absurd. Yeah, absurd. The yeah. valuations I hear about in the market are so crazy. I don't, I don't know how the big incumbents make money on those, other than just to play defense. And that's what it is. I mean, but share. I think that's, I, you know, again, we could talk about that probably for hours. Also. Um, you know, you haven't seen another blockbuster deal like Ballast Point since Ballast Point. There hasn't been another billion dollar valuation since since then. And I, and there won't be. Um, but I think, you know, I think that the breweries that will that will thrive and will continue to exist. Um, I'm hopeful the breweries that will thrive and continue to to exist are the ones that um you know, are paying attention to the business and are making consistent beer and are, you know, focused on their consumer and their growth and not just the, the line at, at the door on a Saturday morning, um, and pay attention to cleanliness and, you know, make quality beer. Sure. So, yeah. It's the, and I'm, I'm hope, you know, not just because something is local doesn't mean it's good. If you can, if you can have both, it's a winning combination. Um, but I'm hopeful that consumers will start paying attention to, to the need for both good and local. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the focus on the long term and the sustainability of the business crucial, especially when you're talking over cycles and at some point it's going to have to turn. Um, and those that get caught are going to get caught. Yeah. They'll be in a good spot. It's going to be an interesting couple of years for sure. Well, Luke, I really appreciate you being on the show. My Thanks pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, 
capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chen Holdco, C-H-E-N Holdco. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you. So please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.